0: He has had to endure countless criticism. I mean from from fans, from people that have seemingly forgot what happened in the semifinal game where they were a series, a sequence, a couple plays away from beating Georgia, from getting to the national championship and probably winning the national championship against a TCU team that was totally overmatched. Hello, welcome into to always college football. Today we have a really fun show in store for you. Such a fun. I think you're gonna like it. It's it's a little bit of a playoff of one of our good friends. I'll tell you about him here in a minute. He does this every day in his show. And we've been listening to his show and enjoying his show and everybody that covers college football the right way. I'm a fan of like, I'm not one of those like we stay out of our territory. No, not me. Like everybody that covers the sport the right way, that isn't throwing hot button topics, that isn't trying to fire coaches, that isn't trying to do this and do that, and prop up their own biases and just have ridiculous comments and things like that. Like for instance, I saw a guy that has Colorado in his top twenty-five to generate some clicks. Like, come on, man. Like let's let's be real. They went one eleven last year. Like, all right. So if you're covering the sport the right way, like Josh Pate does, I'm gonna listen to your show. I'm gonna support you, and. Hey, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. We want the sport to be covered the right way. So we're going to play a game that Josh Pate's played for the last six, seven months. That's what if. And what if I think is a really, really fun conversation this time of year because there are so many what ifs, man. What if the craziness of college football percolates to the forefront? It could absolutely happen. I think it might <laughs> this year. Would it shock you? Probably not me. I know it feels like the top four are very obvious, but every time we think it's obvious, guess what's not? It's not. We continue to appreciate all of you for tuning in, whether it's on the podcast or on ESPN's YouTube channel. Please like, rate, and subscribe. It really helps us out. It really helps the show out. Thanks to Dustin Allval. Thanks to ME with a million numbers. We appreciate you guys. We've seen you guys. Thanks to Chris from New Jersey and the Han 812. It's been awesome. Awesome to see all the reviews on Apple Podcast. Please continue to review the show on Apple Podcast. Rate the show on Apple Podcast. Five stars, please. Uh, and on Spotify as well. Wherever you get your podcast, you can rate the show. So if you'll do that, that'd be huge. And smash that subscribe button. We've grown by leaps and bounds, and we want to continue to grow. And the only way we can do that is by word of mouth. So let's stop wasting time. Let's get to the what ifs. What could happen here in the 2023 season? in college football. So what we want to do today is go through a laundry list of possibilities for the season. Some are a little bit far-fetched, some are a little bit more realistic, but what's the reaction going to be? What exactly needs to transpire for some of these things to go down? That's kind of where we're at, and I want to just tip of the cap to our friend Josh Pate, Uh, He does a series of these every single show, does a great job. We enjoy college football. We want everyone to cover college football, so everyone that does it the right way, we're going to give a shout-out to. He does this a lot. We thought it was a fun idea to try to use some of our own ideas here as we apply it to the what-if segment. So, Koobs, where are we going, bud?
1: All right, for the 2023 season, what if Texas does not win 10 games? Well, let's start with their win
0: total, 9.5. So it wouldn't be a complete shock, especially when you take into account the fact that we haven't seen them do that in the regular season in quite a while. They haven't worn the target on their chest in quite a while, but they also have Alabama in the non-conference. So 10 games, even though I think that's the floor, that should be the expectation for Texas. It's not completely out of the realm of possibility that they come up short of that possible goal. Nine wins would still be a step in the right direction in some cases. However, when you look at their roster relative to the rest of the Big 12, they have everything that you could possibly want. They have the quarterback situation figured out, or at least at the moment. <laughs> we feel good about what Quinn Ewers has done this offseason, doing it in the regular season totally different. He was up and down last year. Hopefully this year he's only up. We think if they win 10, they've adequately replaced the dynamic duo of Bijan Robinson and Roshan Johnson. I happen to think that's going to be okay. Jonathan Brooks and C.J. Baxter appeal ready, appear ready to take the reins of that position. The receivers, we know, probably lived up to expectations. The offensive line probably did a pretty good job of being able to stay together enough and probably stayed healthy enough to c- keep Quinn Ewers upright. Defensively, they probably got be where they're pretty good along the front seven defensively. That group appears, at least based on some of the buzz coming out of fall camp, that the front seven defensively has taken strides that, The coaches had hoped for. So I remain remarkably optimistic. Now, if they come up short of the 10-win plateau, I don't think it's necessary, at least at this point, to overreact and say, Sark clearly can't get it done. He clearly isn't the right guy for the job. Look at the recruiting. Look at how they've already landed some five stars in the upcoming class. Look at the momentum that's been created on that part. Look at the interest and the excitement that has led to them leaving the big 12 for the SEC. I still believe even if they come up short this year. Now they go 4 and 8, yeah, a little different. If they don't win 10, I don't necessarily think it means that they need to reset again and route to the SEC. Sark has done a good job there. They've grown incrementally. Now it's about taking the next step. And if they take the next step this year, they're going to have a ton of momentum going to the SEC. If they don't, doesn't mean you need to press the reset button completely start all over
1: looking for their first 10-win season since 2018. All right, moving on. What if Alabama does not win the SEC West again? Well, it means
0: a couple things. One, either LSU or the field has played up to their potential. doesn't necessarily mean that Alabama isn't a good football team last year. They didn't win the sec West still found their way to the new year six in which they performed adequately against the big 12 champion Kansas state. So I don't think it necessarily is an indicator of Alabama all of a sudden coming back to earth. Uh, I don't necessarily think that if anything, I think if you're going to win the sec West this year, it's not going to be, uh, the lesser of many evils. It's going to be you went out there and took it, kind of like LSU did last year. Yes, there were performances by LSU that weren't great, but they still found a way to get the job done against Alabama on their home field. It also probably means that Alabama lost a game against LSU on their home field, which would be the first time since 2019 that that has actually gone down. Could it happen? Sure. LSU's legit. Look at their roster, they're terrific. Does it also mean that Alabama might? have gone to Texas A&M and and lost that game. A game that right now, if you look at their, I guess, schedule, if you will, based on projected point totals, the game at Texas A&M has Alabama as a nine-point favorite. That's the closest on paper in the regular season, with the exception of the Texas game in which they're just an eight-point favorite. So Alabama heavy favorite in every game, but obviously that Texas A&M road trip could be somewhat daunting. I'm not sure any of us would expect that game to be a cakewalk for the Tide. If Alabama doesn't win the SEC West this year, it would be disappointing naturally for Nick Saban. They've always responded extremely well to disappointment in the past. He's always said, this has been one of Nick Saban's best quotes, never waste a failure. And last year, by all accounts, by their standards, by their expectations, was in many ways a failure. Now, it appears as though we're only a couple weeks into fall camp. It appears as though this group collectively, from a culture standpoint, from a togetherness standpoint, from an edge standpoint, they feel really good about what they have. They feel great about the offensive line. They feel good about the quarterback situation, believe it or not. They feel really encouraged by what they've seen from what should be an improved group of wide receivers, and they like it the committee approach that they'll have in the backfield. Defensively, they're starting to figure out their front four defensively. Jaheim Otis is becoming a star. Dallas Turner's already a star. The second level starting to solidify itself a little bit, and they love what they have in the back end with some of the youth on the deepest part of the field, the safeties, and some of the talent that's on the perimeter with Terry and Arnold on one side and Cooley and McKinstry on the other. If Alabama doesn't win the SEC West, I can't say that it's the result of their own undoing. I think it might have everything to do with another team, potentially elevating a la LSU, a la a a la a, a bad or a down day against Ole Miss or, or a down day against Mississippi state. All those things are totally within reason. You're to Mississippi state right before you go to A&M, you have LSU at home, you have Tennessee at home, and then you go to Auburn at the end of the year. So at Kentucky, a team that might win 10 games. So, uh it's somewhat difficult schedule, I think, for the tide this year with some of the crossovers. Kentucky, one of the best teams in the East, Georgia obviously not there, but Tennessee is. So you have two of the best three teams in the East that you draw, one of which might win 10 games in Kentucky, you're on the road there. So it's gonna be very interesting, I think, to see how Alabama does. But if they don't win the SEC West, I'm not gonna sit here and say Doom and you know, the, the the sky is falling, the world is over, Alabama will never win again. We've said that before, people have said that before. And it hasn't materialized. still think they have every opportunity with what they have coming in, what they've done on the recruiting trail, and the personnel that will return next year with more experience to potentially go and chase it in 24 and beyond.
1: Staying in the SEC, what if Georgia does not win the SEC East? Now, this would be a shocker.
0: It would be a real shock. It indicates a few different things. One, Georgia was unable to adequately replace the edge that the team played with the last season. Because last year, the, the beautiful thing about Georgia, they're always going to have talent. They're always going to have capable players. They're always going to have uh, an advantage from a personnel standpoint against just about everybody they play. That goes without saying. But what last year's team had that made it so unique is they were almost able to convince themselves that people were doubting them. They were able to put a chip on their shoulder, even though everybody was propping them up. And that's a difficult thing to manufacture. That has to come from within. And if some of the departed pieces off of not just last year's team, but the team before, if some of those pieces had read their press clippings, they wouldn't have had that collective edge, that collective doubt, that they assumed we all had, which we didn't. But either way, if Georgia somehow doesn't win the East, it means not only that they lost their collective edge this year because they do have the best roster in the East and they have a relatively manageable schedule. Things lay out pretty nicely to them. They have to go on the road to Tennessee, naturally. You got Kentucky, it's going to be a difficult game. You're on the road at Auburn, difficult place to play. Auburn at that point might at most have one loss. So you should be favored heavily in every single game based on preseason prognostications, the closest game for Georgia is the game on the road at Tennessee where they're a 12-point favorite. Now, granted, that's week 11, so it's way on down the line, and Tennessee might look totally different. Georgia might look totally different at that point as well, so that number could grow or shrink depending on how both teams look. But it means that Tennessee pulled off a miraculous. Run. They had a, they last year they couldn't get anything going offensively against Georgia. This year they solidified the internal part of that offensive line. Their wide receivers stepped up in ways that maybe we couldn't even have anticipated. Their defense was able to constantly harass what was an inexperienced quarterback. They were able to lock down and cover to position, by the way, last year that was a problem, their secondary. They were able to lock down against Georgia's wide receivers, which should be an improved group from top to bottom. It means that they had one of the most chaotic atmospheres in the sport on that Saturday, that Saturday being November 18th. So that had to have probably happened. Auburn, perhaps, let's use them as an example. Naturally, not in the East, so a win over Georgia wouldn't necessarily indicate that Georgia wasn't going to Atlanta, but it would mean that Auburn and Hugh Freeze has slayed the Giant yet again. They were able to maybe manufacture some big plays, maybe Peyton Thorne had an all-world performance against a top-tier defense. They're injured Jordan in Hare, where that place gets a little bit crazy. It gets a little chaotic when they're feeling it in favor of their Tigers. Maybe it means the Kentucky. Usually when you look at Kentucky, I don't love the matchup against Georgia. I have it for years. Why? Because you can't out-Georgia, Georgia. You're not going to be able to say, hey, we're going to run it right at Georgia. We're going to be able to go right toe-to-toe with them and match them physically in the trenches. You can't do that, which is why Kentucky has had a difficult time manufacturing points against Georgia the last couple of years, but uh, maybe on this given day, that excellent wide receiver for for Kentucky, Liam Cohen, one of the best offensive coordinators in America, one of the best transfer quarterbacks in America, Devin Leary, maybe he's able to hit some big plays, create some chunk yardage. So all those things would kind of have to materialize for Georgia, not to represent the East in Atlanta for the SEC championship. So it, It's extremely (laughs) far-fetched. I even have a difficult time talking myself into it, but those are the things that would have to go down for that situation to develop as the season goes along.
1: It would also mean that Georgia will have lost their first regular season SEC game since November 7th, 2020. Quite an incredible run. All right, moving on. What if Michigan beats Ohio State again?
0: Well, the first reaction I would have is I feel bad for Ryan day's off season heading into 24 because he has had to endure countless criticism. I mean, from, from fans, from people that have seemingly forgot what happened in the semifinal game where they were a series, a sequence, a couple plays away from beating Georgia, from getting to the national championship and probably winning the national championship against a TCU team that was totally overmatched. So that would be my first takeaway if that were to come to fruition. For Michigan, it would mean that they continued the status quo. They have an edge right now, or at least they have had an edge the last couple of years at the line of scrimmage against Ohio State. And last year, they were able to create a lot of big plays against an aggressive defense. That will likely continue. It would mean that Jim Harbaugh had done the unthinkable. They had protected their home field. Naturally. But Jim Harbaugh had done the unthinkable and people said he couldn't beat Ohio State. Now he's beaten them three straight years. And Jim Harbaugh clearly found the recipe to not just try to out athlete Ohio State. You probably can't do that. But hey, we can win in a phone booth better than they can win in a phone booth. And they live on the perimeter. They live with their wide receivers. We're going to live between the tackles. And that's where we're going to hit you. And we're going to hit you over and over and over and over and over again. And then when you get greedy, we're going to hit a couple big plays down the field. We're going to hit it to our underrated wide receivers. Let them make a guy miss. And they might be out the gate. We've seen that happen in the last couple of years as well. So I think really more for Michigan, because going into the game, will they be favored? Will they not be favored? I'm not sure it really matters. But to me, the onus, if this result happened at seasons end it would really be more of an overreaction about where Ohio State's program currently resides it would not any longer be a conversation of 1a1b it would be a clear Michigan one Ohio State 2 which would be really uncomfortable for Buckeye fans because that has not been the case for the better part of two and a half decades 25 years just about since it felt like there was a clear pecking order and Michigan was at number one so even though they've won the last couple of years the court of public opinion would probably still lean in favor of Ohio state, which I'm not hundred percent sold on last year, Ohio state, a favorite in the game the year before Ohio state, a huge favorite in the game. Even though when you look at Michigan, they clearly had an advantage being able to control the line of scrimmage and to take and, and deliver those body blows that ultimately brought Ohio state to their knees. So going to be very interesting to see this one play out. If it does happen though, like I said, first reaction, probably an overreaction about Ryan Day's status as one of the top coaches in college football.
1: It would also be the first time that's happened since 95, 96, 97, which ironically was the last years. time Michigan <laughs> won a national championship. All right, what if Oregon State wins the Pac-12? Now
0: I love this one because I actually, as many people have probably realized on this program, I I think it's well within reach and, and A lot of people will say, no, no way. How can you possibly justify that? How can you possibly get on board with that? Well, right now, Oregon State's win total, eight and a half. Right now, Oregon State's sitting in the top 18 in the AP poll. So they're starting to garner a ton of attention. Here's the first takeaway. If they win the Pac-12, Jonathan Smith immediately comes probably the hottest name in college football. People from every nook and cranny that are looking to revitalize their program, press the reset button. And look, Oregon State, with where they're at right now, with the Pac-4, with some uncertainty in the air about their future, where do they go, what do they do, would he listen? I don't know. It is his alma mater after all, but we have seen in recent years, Jeff Brom spurned his alma mater, at least for the moment, to stay at Purdue. Ultimately, yeah, he ended up at Louisville, but we've seen it happen. It has happened before. Uh, We've seen guys leave their alma mater for places that they feel like maybe had a little bit higher ceiling. We've seen that happen uh, a time or two in the past as well. So it, it will be very interesting to see if this does happen out in the Pac-12. What does that mean for where DJ Ui Ungalale is? Now, DJ Ui Ungalale leaving Clemson. Remember, he walked into the Clemson starting spot a couple years ago. Was the face or one of the faces of college football. Had an ad for Dr. Pepper. Was the guy. One of the Heisman picks really across the board by many experts that said, man, did you see this guy in 2020? Now that it's going to be his show in 21, he's going to be unstoppable. I mean, He's going to be great. Well, it didn't go that way, and he kind of struggled. Under the microscope that is the quarterback spot at Clemson, the weight was a little bit heavy, and he didn't play really well didn't process very well, didn't make quick decisions and kind of threw it up for grabs way too often, which ultimately led to Clemson having a couple down years in a row. Wasn't all his fault, even though he received a lion's share of the blame. The other thing though, if he can now go to Oregon State to complement that run game, we know that offensive line is one of the tops in America. We know that offensive system is going to control the line of scrimmage. We know that he has an excellent, excellent running back to be able to rely on and Martinez and he can now use his own legs and his own athleticism because he is a very underrated runner now he's not going to be a guy that rushes for a thousand yards he's not Lamar Jackson but he can be a Cam Newton type where yes he can get the tough yardage he can be a factor he can keep you honest defensively and maybe break one not 80 yards but he can maybe break one 15 20 Because if you're selling out against the run with Martinez at running back, guess who is one-on-one with the defender? And he probably outweighs that defender by 30 or 40 pounds. That would be DJ Uyunglele. So it means that he probably had a terrific year, which I think we all, as college football fans, he handled the departure from Clemson with grace and class. I would be rooting for this possible outcome. It means that the defense continued to play at a really high level. You look at what they were last year. Excellent as far as points per game were concerned, allowed less than 20 points a game. They were really, really good against the run. They allowed just 104 yards per game on the ground. That was 11th in college football, Uh, where they would probably improve as they probably forced a few more turnovers because last year that was not really a a big part of what they did. They forced just 1.2 per game, which not ideal. They were 100th in college football. So that was probably an area of focus this offseason because if they can start to ramp that up and they can just play ground and pound, ball control, take the air out of the football, Iowa-style football, but with a capable offense, then that would go a long way in being able, allowing them to erase what talent gap that might exist against the likes of Oregon, against Washington, against USC... Uh, against Utah, even though toe-to-toe against them from a physical you know, wrestling match won't necessarily be ideal, and it certainly won't skew way in favor of Oregon State, but they can certainly go toe-to-toe. So all those things could potentially happen, and to be honest with you, at 11-to-1, it's not shocking that they could potentially win the Pac-12. I wouldn't be afraid to dabble maybe a little bit on the Beavers to get it done.
2: This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the hypnotic team. Every season is hypnotic and tequila season. Hypnotic liqueur, Bardstown, Kentucky, 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. All right, Greg, I got a couple for you now. I want to know, what if nothing changes for Nebraska with Matt Rule in year one? Well, we already know that this isn't really an accurate
0: what if, but I will kind of transition the question into... What do I think changes on the field? Because things have changed at Nebraska already. Trev Alberts obviously went out. They put together a war chest as it relates to NIL. Matt Rule has already infused a certain amount of energy into the program. They're already starting to feel that impact a little bit. Not to the extent that they want to feel it, but they're already starting to feel as though they're trending in the right direction from a recruiting standpoint. They were already very active in the portal and attracted some, uh, I guess you could say, some guys that other teams really, really, really wanted. So Jeff Sims, if Matt Rule's not there, is Jeff Sims at Nebraska playing quarterback? I, I don't know the answer to that. I'm, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I know what his other options were or what else he was considering, but I think he's already brings a certain level of credibility as a builder to what the program's ultimately going to become. Now, if we look at what he's done in year one at both Temple and at Baylor, it was struggle bus. I mean, he was two and 10 there at Baylor and or at at Temple in year one. He was 1-11 at Baylor in year one, but by year three, he was a 10-win team at Temple. He was an 11-win team at Baylor. So he's a builder. I mean, he knows how to lay the foundation and up to this point, his first-year performance at both places, albeit totally different situations than Nebraska, much worse situations than Nebraska, clearly moves means that whatever they do this year, they're going to be better down the road. So... I don't care what they do this year. I don't, I mean, I would love for them to be able to get to the bowl game. I would love for them to get to seven wins. I think it's within reason. I think it's within possibility. I mean, I think they got a chance to be favored against Iowa. They got a chance to be favored uh, against Maryland at home. I think they got a chance to be favored against Purdue, uh, Northwestern, uh, Louisiana Tech, Northern Illinois, Colorado. I mean, I, I think that there's some possibility for wins in there. Granted, the Iowa game is way down the road. So is Maryland. So so is Michigan State. I mean, these are all games, I think, that are possibly winnable, though, for Nebraska if they can just do the little things right. And if you look at last year, just way too many inefficiencies on the defensive side. Gave up a ton of yards on the ground. Really struggled there. They've probably solidified that. Really struggled as far as points per game. Didn't do a good job in the red zone. They were 75th in points per game allowed. Over 28 points per game given up. They allowed nearly 43% in third down conversions. It's not ideal. Got to get off the field. I would imagine that Matt Rules made that a huge point of emphasis, but why wouldn't you? Uh, they probably did a better job as far as possessing the football. Last year, I think their defense got drained because their offense was 122nd in time of possession. So, I mean, I think back to Nebraska back in the day in their heyday, man, they were probably holding the ball for 40 minutes. Well, last year at 27, not going to be great. And as a result, your defense is going to feel those effects and you got to be better offensively. So there's there's reason to believe that whatever happens this year doesn't really matter because if you look at Matt Rule's track record, he's going to get the job done. It's just, I, I want him to get it done this year. So what if he doesn't, necessarily live up to expectations on the field year one doesn't matter because I know year three is probably going to win double digit games.
2: All right, Greg, let's keep it in the big 10 here. What if James Franklin loses to Michigan and Ohio state again?
0: That would be uh, a real disappointment. (laughs) Now, That would be the, the initial reaction because if you look at where Penn state is this year, it depends a little bit how you lose, Right. I mean, if you lose a game at the buzzer and Ohio State has to go down at home and kick a game-winning field goal as the clock runs to zero, it's a little different feeling, right? But if you lose the way you lost last year at Michigan, for instance, when it was a complete and utter beatdown, I mean, I think they lost 41-14 or so, 41, I remember it being forty. One, I don't recall exactly how many points Penn state scored, but either way you get what I'm saying. They lost by a lot. That loss feels a little different than losing close. Now I know some people have always said, well, you'd rather get blown out. Would you rather lose close? I'd much rather lose close because at least I know I'm going toe to toe with one of the best teams in college football. You got Michigan right now at number two, you got Ohio state at number three and it's time now. I think for James Franklin with this young nucleus to give them a game. Now, Penn State fans might not want to hear this. I've always circled 2024 as the year they could break through. Now, Drew Aller, a lot of excitement, a lot of anticipation with what he might bring to the quarterback spot, but I still believe that Sean Clifford was underappreciated, undervalued, extended plays. When it appeared as though the play was dead, Clifford would somehow become a Houdini and somehow get the ball out and turn what was a nothing burger into a touchdown or a big play or a conversion. So, If Drew Aller can showcase that ability, that'd be big. If they come up short, though, it's still going to leave me feeling optimistic with the type of young players they've been able to attract and knowing that those young players are all going to come together in what will be year three, because many of them are second year sophomores, what will be year three in 2024. So if they don't get it done this year, I'll at least be able to point to next year and say, hey, now it's put up or shut up time
2: for the Nittany Lions. All right, let's move over to the Big 12. And I know you're high on these guys this year. So what if Texas Tech wins the Big 12? It'd
0: be one of the most remarkable stories. And it wouldn't completely shock me. It means a couple things. One, Joey McGuire deserves a lifetime contract. (laughs) That goes without saying. It means that Tyler Shuck has really taken to Kitley's offense and is really grown by leaps and bounds. It means that they were able to take care of business on the road, which is not ideal going away from Lubbock. Lubbock's a tough place to play. means they went to Texas and probably at least got it done. Uh, you got to win one, a few of these, naturally, if you want to win the Big 12. No divisions, but still, being in the top two is going to be a difficult hill to climb if you will but you're at texas you're at kansas you're at byu you're at baylor you're at west virginia that's some pretty tough place to play no matter how you feel about west virginia a road trip to morgantown is a difficult place to play a road trip to baylor very difficult i actually think they tcu at home very difficult ucf at home very difficult Kansas State, the big Twelve chance from a year ago at your place, very difficult. When I look at their schedule, I think their schedule is really difficult. Now, they have a ton of experience coming back. They have a bunch of guys that have played high-level football, a bunch of guys that have been very efficient, a bunch of guys that, that have figured out, all right, here's how we need to do things to be successful. Guys that have been opportunistic at times, like against Texas last year, when they force a fumble of Bijan Robinson, they somehow erase a 14 point deficit and route to an upset victory there early in the season. So I'm really bullish on Texas Tech. I think they go over their seven and a half wins that Vegas has them at right now. But winning the Big 12 feels like a hill that's just a little bit too steep right now. If they do, I almost am probably going to come out of it thinking, man, what happened to Texas, man, what happened to Kansas state, man, what happened to Oklahoma, all three of which I would have above Texas tech right now. And then Texas tech would be right there on the same level as TCU. TCU has a lot to replace. Texas tech has a lot coming back. I think when you look at that game, the fact that it's actually played in Lubbock, I might even lean just ever so slightly in favor of the red Raiders there, but my goodness, there's going to have to be a bunch of upsets for Texas tech to ultimately get to Dallas for the big 12 championship. And then if they get there, you might be in a situation where you got to beat Texas in consecutive weeks, one at their place and one the following week in Dallas in the big 12 championship game.
2: All right, let's head down to South beach coming off a disappointing season. What if Miami doesn't make a bowl appearance again under Mario Cristobal?
0: It's going to really point to culture probably more than anything else because we knew Miami had some talent last year, but the culture wasn't quite there. You know, they'd really gone after and attacked the portal. They've prioritized the portal. They've gone out and they have upgraded at certain positions that they felt like they needed to upgrade at the roster. Wasn't dismal last year. It's just, they didn't play hard all the time. They didn't play together all the time. It felt like a bunch of guys that just put on a uniform, even though they didn't really have, they didn't really have a whole lot of continuity. Now, Challenges and difficult outcomes like the outcome against Middle Tennessee is going to lead to people kind of looking in the mirror. Say, hey, man, what are we doing here? How how are we doing this? So when you lose three in a row, when you lose four out of five there in the middle part of the season, it's going to be difficult to overcome. And you're going to have guys that just decide to abandon the sinking ship. So I think if they don't get to a bowl game this year, it's going to force Mario Cristobal. People will say he's on the hot seat. I don't agree with that. I don't align with that. Takes a little time to get things going. But I think he's going to probably have to look internally at his program, say, is going after the transfer classes and the portal players every year a recipe for success? Now, we've seen it work extremely well. Look at Michigan State two years ago. They went out in the portal. They got a bunch of guys. They end up having a sensational year, got Mel Tucker paid. And then last year was a painful failure. I don't think you can live by the portal and die by the portal. I I think that there are, I think you have to supplement your high school recruiting with portal acquisitions. Now, in order to jumpstart the program, Mario Cristobal has really supplemented his portal additions with high school recruiting. I think it could flip, though, in the event in which they come up short this year. Now, they could bounce back. Um, Last year, it was kind of easy to pin the failures on the offensive coordinator, Josh Gaddis. Because he tried to take a square peg and a round hole and said, Tyler Van Dyke, you're going to do this and you're going to run some RPO stuff. And we're just going to do things that, that I'm more comfortable with. And you're just going to have to learn how to play it. And I won the Royals. This is not a knock on Gaddis. Like he knows how to do it a certain way, but doing it that way was not good for the development of Tyler Van Dyke. So I think that it just wasn't a good mix, and we've seen plenty of good coaches and good quarterbacks just not mix well together. And as a result, like Tony Elliott, when he was at Clemson, called a lot of really good plays, scored a lot of points at Clemson. Went to Virginia, was with Brennan Armstrong, who the previous year scored a lot of points, made a lot of great plays with Robert Anai, who was the OC. Went to Syracuse, and that marriage just didn't mix very well. It just just didn't happen. So it, it's happened other places, but. If it doesn't happen this year, it's going to fall on Mario Cristobal, and it's going to fall on how he's putting the roster together. And it's going to force him to probably look internally and say, hey, maybe we need to adjust how we're doing things. I want to jumpstart this thing, but maybe a homegrown effort to secure players at the high school level and develop them up through the program might be better for the long-term prognosis and health of the program.
2: All right, and keeping it in the sunshine state here for one more, the new kids on the block in the Big 12, UCF, what if they win nine or more games? (laughs)
0: <laughs> it would probably be it'd probably be one of the most dramatic seasons that we've seen in college football. We can go through the schedule in just a minute, but forever, UCF, and just talking big picture here for the moment before we get into the weeds of what Gus Malzahn has created and looking at what they're doing right now on the recruiting trail. I mean, they're doing a great job on the recruiting trail. It's only going to vindicate ucf fans for saying hey we belong we belong we belong and all the power five saying no you don't no you don't no you don't well now they get an opportunity to jump into the power five their win total by the way at six and a half so if they all of a sudden rally up and win nine that'd be a pretty dang remarkable feat but it's not completely out of the realm of possibility they bring back a bunch of starters you got to replace your oc that that can be done. You got to replace your DC. That can be done as well because there's a lot of veteran leadership on the staff. Now you look at the roster and you look at the personnel, slight favorite at Boise State. They're in one of the most underrated games of the season. They're on the second week of the season. Uh, They're an underdog at Kansas State. That would obviously be to be expected. Slight favorite against Baylor right now. Slight favorite against Kansas. Underdog against Oklahoma. Slight favorite against West Virginia. Slight favorite against Cincinnati. Slight favorite against Oklahoma State. And a slight favorite against Houston. Dogs at Texas Tech, at Oklahoma, at Kansas State. Those are really the only three where they're going to be a considerable dog. Here's what's interesting about it, though. I told you slight, 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 slight. It means that UCF had a propensity to win really close games. (laughs) It means that they, in matchups against teams that are comparable. And I don't, look, I don't use the spread. You guys know me. Right now, we're just operating basing on what we think these teams might be. But when we get into the season, we'll dive into the weeds and we'll look at the personnel and we'll look at the teams and the tendencies and how they're playing and what they're doing well and what they're not doing so well. But right now, all we can go off of is what they could be. If they play at their best, though, UCF can knock off any team on their schedule. As of right now, the most heavy dog that they are is 10 points at Oklahoma. Would it shock anybody if they pulled that game off? It wouldn't shock me. I mean, I'm not going to pick them in that game here in the preseason, but it wouldn't shock me if they went up there and John Rice Plumlee is running around like a crazy person. They have some great weapons on the perimeter. The defense does a really good job with some of those transfer portal players and making life difficult for Dylan. great Gabriel. It wouldn't shock me. And that right now on paper, their widest margin between the team they're playing against and the team that, they're, that they are right now, it's not, it's not completely unthinkable. But prepare yourself prepare yourself. We will all be the recipient of UCF Twitter vitriol. If for whatever reason, their first year in the big 12, they rally up win nine or 10, because they will tell you, I told you so. And they will have every right to beat their chest. If they go into the big 12 and cause some havoc, like they might.
1: Speaking of beating their chest, what if Sam Hartman wins the Heisman Trophy?
0: Well, as we've talked about in the past, he's in a good spot to win it. (laughs) You have to be at a premier program. I know it's not all the way across the board. It's not a lock. You don't, I mean, but let's be real. It's really hard to win the Heisman Trophy at a program that's not on national television on a weekly basis. So that's check number one, Notre Dame's going to be heavily televised and heavily covered throughout the course of the season. Number two, means he had some massive Heisman moments. The Heisman has kind of moved away from numbers. It's really moved more in the direction of moments and games that are memorable. So when we fill out our ballot at the end of the year, oh man, I remember what he did against USC. I remember him going on the road to Clemson and playing the way he played last year against Clemson. I remember how he performed in that incredible, incredible game on the road at NC State in week three or two. I mean, those are going to be what stand out when people start to fill out their ballot. So I think he played beautifully in the aforementioned games at Clemson, USC at home, at Ohio State. He probably pulled off two upsets out of the three at a bare minimum. It means he transitioned beautifully to Jared Parker's offense, an offense that we're still a little bit unsure as to what it's going to look like. Is it going to be more RPO, like Sam Hartman ran at Wake Forest? Or is it going to be more prototypical dropback? Because that's kind of been what Notre Dame's been the last couple of years. You hire from within, you assume they're going to keep the status quo with what they've done offensively. Maybe a few tweaks here and there. But it means that he adapted to an offensive system that's a little dissimilar to the one that he ran at Wake Forest. It means more than likely that the offensive line, as we've documented for a while now with Notre Dame, it means that those guys played really well and kept his jersey clean. It means that Notre Dame's wide receivers, a group that we've been waiting for, it means that they've emerged. It means that they've taken the next step. Maybe you've had two, maybe three guys completely emerged to a point in which they're within striking distance of all American contention. So, And it also means that Notre Dame's in the playoff because I don't envision a scenario where Sam Hartman wins the Heisman Trophy and Notre Dame's not one of the four best teams in America. Because if you look at the rest of the roster, if we're talking about the most outstanding player in the country playing quarterback for you, you're probably sitting at 11-1, 12-0, which for Notre Dame, I think their fans would gladly welcome. (laughs) They will be favored in nine games this year. They will be underdogs in three. If he can play like a superstar in those three games, and believe me when I say this, I think he can, then the sky's the limit for what the Irish could be this fall.
1: God, that got me excited. All right, now speaking with the Heisman, all right, what if a defensive player wins the Heisman?
0: Well, kind of piggybacking off what we just talked about with Hartman, you got to have moments and you got to be playing at a big program for instance, I think last year to the to the performance by JT Tuimolaau at Ohio State playing against Penn State. I mean, I don't remember the stat line off the top of my head. He had like two sacks, pick six, an interception, two batted balls. I mean, four quarterback hits or pressures or hurries. The guy was all over the place. He was just a completely unstoppable performance, completely unstoppable. So I would say that really comes down to a pretty short list. Remember, We've had three non-quarterbacks wide or, or non-quarterbacks or running backs win the Heisman Trophy in the last 50 years. Three. Devontae Smith, Desmond Howard, and Charles Woodson. Three guys that won the Heisman Trophy that didn't play quarterback or running back. Now, there is a fullback in there. Maybe two fullbacks in there in the last 50 years. But basically, with the Vera offense that they were running, they were running halfback. They were getting a lot of touches. They were going straight ahead three yards in the cloud of dust. So... It'd be almost unthinkable, but some of the names that I would consider in this situation, uh, maybe a Harold Perkins at LSU, if he completely takes over the game against, say, Alabama, if he completely takes over the SEC championship game against Georgia, I could see him in that position. And we've seen Manti Teow, we've seen Aiden Hutchinson, we've seen, uh, you know, the Honey Badger, we've seen a handful of other defensive players make it to New York. As a Heisman finalist, but usually their performances, they completely go off in one of the biggest games of the year. And it's more often than not in November. Aiden Hutchinson, they get that huge breakthrough win against Ohio State. You see him crying on the sideline in the snow. That was a lasting memory for Heisman voters. So as a result, he goes up to New York and finds it. And Dominican Sue against Texas completely dominated the Big 12 championship game against Colt McCoy back in 2009. Manti Teo didn't play in a conference championship game, but they was kind of the heartbeat and the heart and soul of a team that had not been to the national championship in quite a while. So, hey, we got to, who's the best player on Notre Dame? They're in the national championship. Oh, yeah, that, that linebacker's pretty good. Let's put Manti Teo in there. So you got to be on a national championship contending team. So you look at a Jared Verse, perhaps. From Florida State, maybe he goes off and has four sacks against Clemson in the ACC championship game. I mean, these are the types of performance that need to happen for a defensive player to bring home the most coveted individual award in the sport.
1: Very true. All right, last one here. What if there's another TCU this year? So a
0: team that gets the national championship and basically flies by the hair of their chinny chin chin all the way to the national championship. And if you look at TCU's performances last year, this is not a slight to them. Like you find a way to win. And it's not there. They don't need to apologize for Michigan playing poorly in the semifinal game. I mean a lot of people are like, well, well, you know, Michigan was better and Ohio State would have beat them and like okay, well they don't they don't need to apologize. I mean they they won the game and they played terrible against Georgia, but I digress. They had a great year. Who are some of the candidates that's a, probably a little bit trickier thing to come up with. Would Oregon State be considered a team that could find, their, find some magic and maybe make their way to a national championship game? Sure. I mean, you get a good matchup in the semifinal game, and they don't really like that physical punch you in the face, we're going to completely wear you out type of approach. Not a lot of teams want to see that. I mean, that's a difficult team to match up against. I think they would clearly qualify. When I think about some other candidates, and and we'll go through our sleepers, dark horses, we'll do that in a later episode. There are a few that I look at. Texas Tech has been one. They got an early game, a good litmus test, naturally against Oregon early on. Can they potentially make the college football playoff? It's hard for me to envision that scenario, but it's not completely out of the realm of possibility. Maybe a Mississippi State for whatever reason. I mean, that would be TCU-esque to me. If you look at coming out of the West, if it's all of a sudden a complete dogfight, they somehow pull off a shocker against Georgia. I mean, would it, could it happen? Perhaps, probably unlikely. What about a North Carolina? A team led by arguably, arguably, Big A, the best quarterback in America. I know Caleb's kind of in a league of his own, but if you take away Caleb, then Drake Mays right there. Maybe they figure things out on defense. They don't rank in the hundreds. They've ranked in the seventies. And uh, next thing you know, they're 10 and two or 11 to one playing in the ACC championship game against Florida state. And they beat Florida state and find their way to the playoff. That would certainly qualify. What about a Wisconsin? I've compared Wisconsin all season to TCU last year, a program that has a proud and storied history of winning at a high level had a coach for a really long time or a style for a really long time. And it just got a little bit stale. So you hire Luke fickle. You breathe some energy into the program. You bring a new offensive identity, by bringing up Phil Longo from North Carolina and the offense takes off. You beat Ohio state at home. You take care of business against the teams you're favored against. Now you're sitting at 11 to one playing for the big 10 championship, playing against an Ohio state or a Michigan with the opportunity to potentially punch your ticket to the college football playoff. Would they qualify? Perhaps, what about a UCLA, the team with a ton of experience? Everyone's talking to everybody else in the in the Pac-12. If the Pac-12, if there's just chaos everywhere, and the SEC champion is Georgia, and then everybody else has two losses along the way, and the Big Ten champions Michigan, and everybody else has two losses, and the Big Twelve just completely cannibalizes itself, the ACC cannibalizes itself some way somehow, or you know maybe it's a Maybe Florida State runs away with it, and and Clemson, and those others are are kind of down the list a little bit. Nine and three with no great wins, what have you? What if UCLA gets to the Pac-12 championship at ten and two and knocks off one of the teams that beat them early on? Uh, UCLA has some opportunities in the non-conference as well that that could be pretty interesting, uh, and and make life perhaps maybe a little bit difficult. Um, so there, there's a lot of possibilities, I think, when you take things into account of what could happen. It's a short list of potential candidates of TCU-type teams that no one's really talking about, but it really wouldn't shock me anymore. I and mean, With the transfer portal, teams can rally up and rally down really quickly. So Cinderella can certainly happen, but it can Cinderella dance when she gets to the ball is the big question that I would have moving forward. That'll do it for us here at Always College Football. Please continue to like, rate, and subscribe. We so appreciate everything you guys have done to help us grow the show over the last calendar year. For all of us here at Always College Football, for Mark, Jake, Jack, I'm Greg. We hope you have a wonderful day, and remember, it's Always College Football. Hey, guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and
3: wherever you listen to your podcast.